So that's 2 Samuel chapter 11, starting at verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him. And he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. But when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and he did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah didn't go down to his house. David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go down to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning... David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him so that he can be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he urged, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, when you finish telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises and he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot you from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, 
Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. That's 2 Samuel chapter 11, beginning in the middle of verse 27. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are that man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord, to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Now, every Wednesday night, my wife goes out to study the Bible with international students at IGG. And when I stay at home to look after the children, And at the beginning of the year, I decided that it'd be a good idea to try to make this fun. And so every Wednesday night, I make a cup of hot chocolate for all of the children. Um, And then after some trial and error, I stumbled on this plan that guarantees that instead of being a great big quarrel or a fight or difficult, um, that time together um, can be peaceful um, and quiet and fun. And it's this amazing parenting hack. You may not have heard of it, um, but I put them in front of the television. (laughs) And so a couple of weeks ago, um, we sat down to watch The Lion King, the remake of the um, great 1990s film. And it is a great film, isn't it? Um, Such a gripping plot, uh, such an amazing story arc, um, such good songs, um, some great closing scenes, some wonderful characters. Um, One of my children, well, they were all gripped, really. That's what I'm going to say. And we had a great time watching it. I wonder, have you ever thought about the kingdom theology of The Lion King? You may think I'm overthinking this, and I just want to reassure you I didn't ask that question to my children. Um, But it does have a kingdom theology, and did you notice that? And the first thing is that although it is possible to ruin the kingdom, and the kingdom does get ruined in the Lion King, doesn't it? It takes a real baddie to ruin the kingdom. Just remember Scar, 
I mean, he's so full, isn't he, of malice and cruelty, this malevolent, embittered, envious force with that phalanx of mengi hyenas behind him. You can ruin the kingdom, but it takes a real pantomime villain to do it. Putin, Hitler, Stalin, Boris. You can ruin the kingdom. And here's the second thing. If that's true, then as long as we're basically nice, there's no reason why we shouldn't get on with building the kingdom now. I mean, think of Simba. He's not perfect, is he? He's a bit weak, like he's a bit selfish, a bit lackadaisical, hakuna matata. But he is basically nice. And so when he kind of gets his act together and turns up and tries to put things right, well, everything gets right again. We are not perfect. We're probably a bit selfish, a bit lackadaisical, a bit happy-go-lucky. But we're basically nice. And so we ought to expect our churches semi-automatically to be communities of peace and joy and kindness. We might expect our society to be the same. As long as we can keep the really bad guys out, the real pantomime villains, we should expect something that looks at least a little bit like the kingdom now. Well, listen, if we have learned our theology of the kingdom from the Lion King, I'm afraid that this morning's passage is going to come as something of a shock. Um, 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12 are all about what it takes to lose the kingdom of God. Remember back to last week and we saw that incredible picture of the Lord's kindness and his grace, his tenderness and his generosity in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. And, and over the course of these chapters, that is all lost. But it turns out that what it takes is not a real pantomime villain. It's somebody just like us. What it takes is David. Firstly, this morning, David's sin ruins the kingdom. Now, it is obvious as you read through chapter 11 that this is a chapter about sin. David breaks at least four of the Ten Commandments. He covets, he commits adultery, he lies, he murders. It's very obviously a chapter about sin. But it's also a chapter about the ruin of the kingdom. And what happens in 2 Samuel chapter 11 is breathtakingly awful. And to begin with, David ruins Bathsheba. I look back to verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. The narrator is very sparing in the details. He doesn't tell us about Bathsheba's feelings. He doesn't tell us whether she consented or not. And that's not clear. But what he does say makes it really clear that David is the bad guy. I mean, number one, she's the fact that, there's the fact that she is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Uriah the Hittite, who is one of David's 30 mighty men and 30 of the most valiant heroes in his kingdom. And then there's the fact that she is bathing, not to be provocative, not so that she can be seen by the king, but to obey the law, 
She's purifying herself after her periods. And then, well, then there's the fact that David flexes the machinery of state, sends all these messengers, not to find out what's happening on the front, which is what he should be doing, but instead to get this woman into his beds. And then there's verse 4. Did you notice verse 4? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Those three verbs, sent, took, came. We had them last week with Mephibosheth. Do you remember that David sent messengers to Lodavar who took Mephibosheth from Lodavar and he came to David at Jerusalem. And we had this amazing scene of David's kindness, his tenderness, his grace, his generosity. David sent messengers and they took her and she came to David's so that he could satisfy his lust. And Bathsheba is left with a broken marriage and defiled purity. And goodness knows what was going on in her conscience and another man's child. To begin with, David ruins Bathsheba. He tries very hard to ruin Uriah. And he sends for him in verse 6 and um, asks for peace. Asks about his peace. It's so hypocritical, isn't it? Um, And then he tries to get Uriah to sort of inadvertently cover his tracks. I wonder, as it was being read, did you notice that in this book that is all about rises and falls, about the Lord bringing people up from the ash heap and also sending down the proud, did you notice how determined David is to send Uriah down? And so look, he tells him in verse 8 to go down to his house. And then again, we get it in verse nine. He didn't go down to his house. And the servants told him that he didn't go down to his house. And so David asked him in verse 10 why he didn't go down to his house. And even after he got him drunk, verse 13, he did not go down to his house. David is desperate to push, actually to pull Uriah down to his own level. It is quite seedy. And he tells Uriah, and to go home and wash his feet, which might sound innocent enough, but is probably a fairly crass euphemism. David um, uh, takes this man, Uriah, who is determined to be battle-ready, and who is determined not to sort of lose sight of the fact that his peers are fighting on the front, and tries to make him like him. Go on, relax, enjoy yourself, chill out. And when that doesn't work... He gets him drunk. David has already ruined Uriah's wife and his home life. And now he tries to ruin the man as well. And the reason his plan fails is because it turns out Uriah is a better man drunk than David is sober. David ruins Bathsheba. He tries to ruin Uriah. And then, well, he doesn't ruin Joab because the truth is that Joab wasn't really there for the ruining, and the man was bad enough already. He's a man of blood, cynically willing to do what it takes. Joab is a kind of a real bad guy through the whole of Samuel. He doesn't ruin Joab, but he does ruin something else. And verse 14, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. I mean, that's horrible, isn't it? And that he sends Uriah's death warrant in an envelope in his own hand, Verse 15, in the letter he so he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. 
And Joab is true to form, and as the cynical man of blood that he is, is all too willing to acquiesce with this request. David does make Joab look a bit of a fool, and Joab is a a clever military commander um, who is used to doing things right, but in order to enact David's plan, he has to send a bunch of his best warriors to get killed under the walls. I don't think Joab likes that very much. And again, it makes such a contrast with David. David, who wept, who lamented over the death of his enemy, rejoices when he hears the good news that some of his best and most loyal warriors have died. But the thing that really gets ruined in this scene is nothing less than the whole kingdom. The second half of 2 Samuel 11 is a key moment in the books of Samuel. It is the moment when David gives Joab the keys to the kingdom. And do you know what? David never gets them back again. Through the whole of the rest of this book, the real power, the real force in 2 Samuel will be Joab. Not David's, the man of peace, but Joab, the cruel man of war. And the whole kingdom will have to live with the consequences of this moment for the rest of the book because David needed Joab to cover his tracks. He ruins the kingdom. What ruins the kingdom is David's sin. And that's not what we're expecting at the start of 2 Samuel chapter 11. Uh, At the beginning of the chapter, there is a very clear threat in the first verse. There is a pantomime villain, an enemy at the gates. Uh, Not David's, but the Ammonites. The Ammonites who were enemies of kindness, who are serpentine and evil. You would think, wouldn't you, that the front is the place of danger and Jerusalem is the city of peace. The front is the dangerous place and David's in his palace is safe. But it turns out that's all back to front. The real war the one that's actually going to bring the kingdom crashing down, is not the one that's happening at the border. It's the one that's happening in David's house, in David's bed, in David's heart. When I was a student, I read a book by a guy called Chris Lungard. It was about sin, and it was called The Enemy Within. It's a great title, isn't it? Where is the real enemy of the kingdom in this chapter? Not the Ammonites, David's sin. It is the same David's. We live in a judgmental age, and so when the mighty and the good fall, retrospectively, we re-engineer everything to show that they were always a villain deep down. But it's just not true here. This is the same David's. He is the same David who is the sweet psalmist of Israel. And lots of his best psalms are yet to be written. He's the same David that we met last week as the king of covenant love. He's the same David whose relationship with God we would love to share. The same David who still teaches us how to pray. The same David who spent all of those years patiently, faithfully waiting for God to keep his promise. He's the same David's. We would love to be able to write him off, wouldn't we? And to say, 
Thank God that we're better than him. We live in the new covenant. We're better than him. We're not. David was the best of men. And it was his sin that ruined the kingdom. In fact, everything about this chapter is so relatable. Did you notice that? Just ask the question, where do things start to go wrong? Where do the wheels start to come off? Is it when David stayed at home instead of going to the fights? Can you imagine making the same decision? I can. Was it when David was idly lazing around in the afternoon? Can you imagine doing that? Was it when David cast his eyes on Bathsheba and let them linger instead of looking away? Can you imagine doing that? Was it when David made that idle inquiry about who she was when he sort of entered that little Google search? Can you imagine doing that? It's so easy, isn't it, to put ourselves into his place and so hard to be sure what we would have done had we had his opportunity and his power. Maybe you know what you would have done. Let me ask, in our society, is it really so difficult to imagine taking innocent life to cover over the consequences of adultery? Anyone who's watched the post office scandal unfold over the last few weeks knows just how easy it is to do despicable and cruel things in order to protect a brand. David didn't ruin the kingdom by being unlike us. He ruined it by being like us. It's tempting to say that until verse 27, he got away with it. And after a fashion, I suppose, he kind of did. But when you think back to last week, everything that mattered was already in tatters. And so here it is. It doesn't take scar to ruin the kingdom. Mufasa could do it all by himself. I wonder, have we ever seen how destructively awful, how catastrophic our sin, regular, common, run-of-the-mill sin like ours, really is? And then it gets worse. Secondly, the Lord's judgment brings death to the kingdom. Now, this is where the Lord steps in, verse 27. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said. It's such a stark moment. And chapter 11 is full of sendings. David and Joab and Bathsheba are all sending messages left, right and center. They're flying around. Now it is God's turn. And so he sends his prophet, Nathan. And famously, Nathan sets David up and brings this case, the case of the man with his lamb. And if you're paying any attention in those verses, it's full of hints about who it is that Nathan is really talking about. But of course, David has long since stopped paying any attention to the word of the Lord. And so he falls for it hook, line and sinker. Verse 5, David's anger was greatly kindled, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And then Nathan replies, You are the man. 
We get the Lord's description of what David has done in the next verses. He's struck down Uriah with the swords. He's taken another man's wife. He's despised the promise, the word, the covenants of the Lord's. And then we get the judgments. And it is scrupulously just. Look at verse 10. Now, therefore, because you have used the sword of the Ammonites to strike down Uriah, verse 9, now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. You use the sword against Uriah, the sword won't depart from you. Now, because, verse 11, you took another man's wife and secretly lay with her, I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. And then verse 14, because you have despised the words that I gave about your house and your children, and because you have brought death to another man's house, because you've scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Uh, the punishments here, they're all designed to fit the crime. It is scrupulously just. In every instance, the consequences go beyond David's. And over the coming chapters, we're going to see that the words about the sword and about David's wives are going to be fulfilled in civil war and the loss of the kingdom. Thousands of people will pay for what David has done. Thousands will die for what David has done. And that might seem unfair, but that's always what happens when leaders fail. They don't just fail for themselves. They take the whole kingdom with them. And the point is that there are now two reasons why we can be absolutely sure that David has ruined the kingdom. If it wasn't enough that he wrecked it on his own, the kind of the natural consequences of what he did wrong. There is also the fact that God makes sure the Lord's judgment brings death to the sinful kingdom. Now that's the problem, isn't it, with having a good God? Scrap that. That's the beauty of having a good God. He will not sweep evil under the carpets. He will not tolerate cruelty or self-service, or lust, or deceit. Ancient Rome and the modern West might be happy to try to build peace on a foundation of lust and death, but the living God will not. And so even if the kingdom could survive the natural consequences of David's sin, it will not survive the judgment of God. Here is this double guarantee that the sinful kingdom must fall. It cannot be the kingdom of God's. What David has already worked, and then God's sworn words that he will not let that kind of thing go. The Lord's judgment brings death to the kingdom. And I guess the question is, where does that leave us? And people talk about 1 and 2 Samuel as being shaped like a kind of double-humped camel. Um, what they mean is that it's a story of two rises and falls, the rise and then the fall of Saul and the rise and then the fall of David. And that's essentially right. And over the next seven or eight chapters, we're going to, well, it's going to make very uncomfortable reading because it turns out that the Lord is going to follow through on what he said. The child does die. 
the sword does come. The wives are taken. It's just the same story as with Saul. He became proud, turned away from the Lord, despised his words, and so he's going to be brought down. And of course, that raises the question, is it going to end in despair like Saul? And it leaves a question for us, doesn't it? If even David is bad enough to ruin the kingdom, what price forgiveness for you and for me? If even David's kingdom was torn to pieces, then who could possibly build it? Well, thirdly, this morning, the Lord's promise still stands. At the signs of grace, they start as soon as Nathan has finished speaking. David acknowledges his sin, and over the next paragraph or so, proud and desensitized David starts to fast and to pray and to seek the God of grace. But nothing prepares us for what happens in verse 24. Verse 24. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord's. It is unbelievable, isn't it? We might have expected that Bathsheba would get sent to a nunnery. Maybe David should have been sent to a nunnery or a monastery. Somehow, this relationship, this relationship that has done so much damage, turns into a marriage and is blessed. And she conceives another son. And Nathan the prophet comes back not to announce God's judgment on them, but to declare God's love. And the child is called Solomon, the prince of peace. And the child is called Jedediah, the beloved of the Lord. It's scandalous grace, isn't it? You might even feel outraged that out of all of the awfulness of what David did in chapter 11, this might be the result. It's not fair. But the thing that makes this so good is not just that this is private grace. In fact, it's not mostly about a story about how David found love out of his adultery. On the contrary, David's family life is going to be a mess for the whole of the rest of the books of Samuel. It's not really about private grace. No, it's something much better than that. This is about the promise that David's would have a son who would build God's house and would have a family through whom in the end, through a beloved son, the Lord's kingdom would be established forever. And it's this amazing grace that in spite of everything, that promise is still on track. In fact, not in spite, do you see this? That It's not just that in spite of what David has done with Bathsheba, Even through what David has done with Bathsheba, the Lord is fulfilling his promise. Solomon, Jedediah is the first installment, and Jesus is the final outcome. Sin ruins the kingdom. Judgment brings death to the kingdom. But God's kingdom promise still stands. And there's something powerful enough to bring the kingdom back. 
the grace, the promise of God's. Well, just like last week, there's a twofold purpose here. Uh, On the one hand, these are chapters about where the kingdom cannot come from. Um, In a word, it can't come from us. And they have tremendous explanatory power. As long as people like David, as long as people like us hold the keys, we cannot experience the kingdom of God. Not really. We need to stop being shocked when the church is not heaven. I need to stop being shocked when I need to forgive people. And I need to stop being shocked when I need to ask for forgiveness. It doesn't take a pantomime villain to ruin the kingdom of God. It just takes people like me and basically nice people. I'm sure we're all lovely. Basically nice people can't build it. This is a passage about where the kingdom of God cannot come from. It's also about a passage about where the kingdom of God must come from. Because God has made a promise, and so it must come. Just think how much has happened in chapter 11 to give us reason to despair of God's promise. Lust, adultery, deceit, murder, corruption, conspiracy, and searing judgment. We might think that there is no promise for God's, no, no, no hope for God's promise or purpose after all of that. And we would be wrong. Now, sometime later, the Lord sent another messenger to another member of David's house. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary home as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much that even where our sin is so evil and corrupt and it's so impossible to imagine how your purpose could be established in a world like ours, we praise you that your grace and your promise still stands. And we pray that you'd be teaching us um, to see the awfulness of our sin and to see the need we have of forgiveness, to despair of our efforts to build your kingdom and to trust in the living Lord Jesus. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.